Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going today. We're continuing in our Storytellers series that we've been going with the last several weeks. Last week we talked about the impossible things that are possible through the power of God. And so today we continue in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. We're going to talk about Moses today. Moses is a guy that many of you probably know his story pretty well, but hopefully today we can look and find some things that maybe you didn't know before you came in. Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 28. Here's what we're going to read. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth uh, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The story of Moses is pretty well known, but let me just make sure we're all on the same page. And let me drop back and tell you even how we got there. The story of Joseph is a story that takes up a large portion of the end of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And the last several chapters, for the most part, give us the story of Joseph. And Joseph is a man who's a dreamer. He has a dream, and that dream eventually leads him into all kinds of crazy, weird, terrible things that happen to him through no fault of his own. But at the end of the story, and and, and hopefully you you can go back and read again, I I believe beginning in Genesis 38 through Genesis 50 is really where you find the story of Joseph, and it's awesome. You need to read it. It's incredible, incredible narrative there. But the end of the story of Joseph is that Joseph's family comes and joins him in Egypt. And he joins, they, they join him in Egypt, and then eventually Joseph dies, and Joseph's family dies off, and the descendants of Joseph, they begin to multiply. They get really, really big, and there's a lot of them, and they're just, I don't know if it's like your family reunion, but there's just people everywhere. And the Egyptians see all these descendants of Joseph, and they begin, the Bible says that there comes a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. So Joseph, when he came to Egypt, was kind of buddy-buddy with Pharaoh because of the dream that he had, the interpretation of a dream that Joseph was able to give him. And so he and Pharaoh were buddies, and Pharaoh gave him a really prominent place. But there comes a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and doesn't really care about the descendants of Joseph and these multiplying incredible numbers of Hebrew people. And so the Pharaoh of that day takes captive all these Hebrew people and begins to kind of make them make bricks out of straw. And they, they, they put these taskmasters over top of them and enslave them and oppress them. And so then what happens is even though they're continuing, even though they're being kind of beaten down, they continue to multiply. And so the Pharaoh of that day decides we're not going to allow any young boys to live. When they're born, we're going to have these young boys killed. We're only going to let the girls of the Hebrew people uh, to, to, to live. And so we're not going to allow them to, to have any more boys. And yet the midwives don't really obey that order. And, and, and so a lot of the boys continue to, to be born. And so Moses' mom and dad are in this climate, pregnant and having a boy, having a child. They realize it's a boy. And the Bible tells us in a couple of places that these parents look on Moses when he's first born and realize there's something special about him. They, they realize that, that he, he's kind of a special child. There's something going on. I think that's how my parents looked at me. But they, they realize there's something here that they don't want to kill, right? And so they decide they're going to take this baby and save this baby and hide this baby. And so uh, after three months, they take the baby, they take Moses, they put him into a basket. And they put him into the Nile River. And they leave Moses' sister there on the banks of the Nile River. 
to watch and make sure that nothing bad happens to the child that's in this basket, this three-month-old little boy. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River, and she sees the basket. She eventually opens the basket, finds the baby, and the sister walks up. And, and when she finds that baby, the sister comes up and says, Oh, do you want me to find you a Hebrew woman who can nurse this baby? And she says, Yes, go and do that. And so Moses is returned back to his mother who is then able to care for Moses in these early formative times of his life. Eventually, though, he is delivered into the house of Pharaoh and given over as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so he grows up in the palace, in the the home of Pharaoh, in the home of Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up there among the Egyptians. And we don't have this in the story of Exodus, but we read in Acts chapter 7 that when he was 40 years old, we don't know the age in the original Exodus story, but when he was 40 years old, he decides one day, one translation says that his heart was turned towards his brothers, not the Egyptian brothers where he was raised, but his Hebrew brothers, which is his real heritage. His heart was turned towards his brothers and he leaves the palace and he goes out to see the oppression of his Hebrew brothers. Brothers, And so he goes out and when he goes out, he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew uh, men. And so Moses runs over and he attacks the Egyptian who is attacking the, the, the Hebrew and he eventually kills the Egyptian and he tries to hide that. And then the next day he comes back out. And he's going to talk to his Hebrew brothers because his heart is still turned towards them. And I don't know how he felt. I think I know how I would feel. I would think, wow, I just saved one of my Hebrew brothers that when I walk up into camp, they're going to be pretty excited to see me because, hey, here comes Moses who protects us from these mean Egyptians. But when he walks up, the Hebrews are actually mad at him and they say, hey, who made you ruler over us? Who made you our protector? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses gets afraid. And in that moment, we see that Moses runs away and he runs out into the desert and he spends the next 40 years in the desert uh, kind of growing his family and eventually encountering God again and getting another chance to make right the promise that God had on his life. But when I read the story of Hebrews 11, I read some interesting things about the story of Moses because we sum up the entire story of Moses as it relates to Hebrews 11 in just a few verses. We just read almost the entire uh, mention of Moses here. There's one other verse above this that talk about is the faith of his parents. But we read all that Hebrews 11 has to say about Moses. And so his entire life is summed up in just these few short verses. And there were several things that jumped out to me back in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. Verses 24 and 25, I want to read a couple things. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, there's several things that are happening here, but we have a couple of pieces of his story kind of mashed together into this one passage. But he refuses to be called Pharaoh's daughter's son. And he leaves that place because his heart was turned back towards his brothers, these Hebrew people. And he goes and joins them, but not right away, right? He, he goes to try to help them, but eventually spends time out in the desert and actually spends time with some of his ancestors there, his, his family, long lost relative family. So he spends time in the desert. And it's not until God intervenes in that part of the story through the burning bush experience, if, you, if you're familiar with that story, it's not until that moment that he actually gets returned to his people and then leads his people out of the captivity of the Egyptian people. And so there's a lot that's happening here, but he chooses then to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, anytime you see that phrase, the people of God, we're talking about, and and when you see it in the Old Testament, we're talking about the Hebrew people, the chosen people, the covenant people that God had connected himself to through the covenant of Abraham. And so Moses here is connecting himself. He is joining himself, choosing to be mistreated with God's chosen people rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, we don't know. I mean, there's nothing that tells us that just living in Pharaoh's house would have been sinful. There's nothing that says that, you know, just being connected as Pharaoh's daughter's son would have been sinful. But we do see that there was a choice he made to align himself with the people of God rather than to align himself with the enemies of the people of God. He chose to be mistreated in that way. And it occurs to me that people today are still mistreated. I don't know if you saw the headlines this week about the arrests that were made where hundreds of children were restored back and pulled out of this incredible, inhumane trafficking type of system, and people were going to be prosecuted. They were arrested. They're going to be prosecuted for this terrible, terrible treatment of children and and underage victims. People are still being mistreated. Human trafficking is not something that just happens around the world. It happens in our backyard. Abuse happens of people of all ages. We see racism. We see sexism. We see all kinds of discrimination that happens towards all kinds of different people groups. And it occurs to me that Moses chose in this moment of his story to align himself with the mistreated rather than those that were mistreating. And so it it confronts in me, who do I align myself with? Who is it that I connect myself with, with as it relates to culture? Now, maybe I'm not one that's trafficking. Maybe I'm not one that's literally physically abusing others. But I wonder if there's something in my heart that aligns myself with those that oppress rather than those that are oppressed. And I see a lot in Scripture that Christ takes an incredible view of those who are being oppressed. And I want to align myself in that way. Am I subjecting myself to all kinds of mistreatment? I sure hope not because I don't like to be mistreated, but I want to make sure that I'm on the right side of that equation. Verse 26 of Hebrews 11 is another thing that just jumped right out at me. It says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, there's a couple things that, that the reason this stands out to me, how did Moses consider the reproach of Christ when Christ hadn't shown up yet? You ever ever read anything in Scripture that alludes to parts of the story that haven't shown up yet? You ever watched a television show or a movie, and maybe the second time through when you watch it, you see them foreshadowing something that's coming, but the first time you didn't have a clue what they were talking about because you didn't know that's how the story was going to play out. But then the second time you watch it back, you see that little dead boy talking to the guy. You go, oh my God, he's dead. And you don't have to wait till the end when he goes, I see dead people. You don't have to wait until that happens because you know he's dead. Right? The first time you had no clue. You were just just drifting along. Isn't that boy sweet? Isn't this a weird story? I don't know how this happens. The second time you watch it, you go, this story freaks me out. I don't know why this guy would choose to hang out with dead people. Right? You, you just, there's parts of the story you know now going back. But you and I have a vantage point when we read scripture. Because we can look at the story of Moses and we can see Christ at work. Now, Moses didn't choose the reproach of Christ. There's no way he could have known Christ because Christ had yet to come. Christ had yet to come and to live on the earth and to be the savior of the world that you and I know him to be. And so a lot of our faith is pointed through the lens of who Jesus Christ is. But have you thought about the people that lived before Jesus Christ? Maybe you have. Maybe when you were coming to faith in some way, if you have... 
You thought about, wow, I'm so lucky. I know Jesus. But what about the people who never knew Jesus? What about the people in the world who have never heard the name of God? How then are they saved? How are the people in the Old Testament saved? What happened to all these people? And there's a lot there, and there's not enough time for us to get into all of that. But I think it's interesting here that the writer of Hebrews wanted you to know that even though Moses didn't know who Jesus was, it really impacted his motivation for the decisions that he made. Because he understood something about the nature of God that was reflected later in the person of Jesus Christ. The people of the Old Testament were attuned to who God was. Jehovah God, he was a God that spoke to them. He was a God that led them as a pillar of fire, a cloud. He was a God that spoke to them through the prophets. There's this incredible kind of line of thought. It's been around for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, even if it didn't have the same name, but it's called this Christological interpretation. It's the idea that when you read scripture, you read it through the interpretation of Christ. Every scripture that you read can be interpreted this way. And I just wrote down some examples that people use when they look at some of these things. Creation. Obviously, Jesus hadn't come to the earth to live as a flesh human being yet. But Jesus, now understanding who he was, represents to humanity the second Adam. He is the fulfillment of the perfect human relationship, walking, communing with God. And so when we read the creation story, we see the nature of Jesus at work there. God is making all things new again, just like he did in creation. He's bringing order out of chaos, which we preached just a few weeks ago. You read the story of Noah, which we referenced just a few weeks ago. You can see deliverance from destruction through obedience and provision from God. You can see through the story of Jesus that he brings about deliverance ahead of the destruction that is foreshadowed and talked specifically about in Scripture through obedience and the provision of God. You see in the story of Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to him these incredible things. And we see that Abraham and the covenant, Jesus referenced himself as the new covenant. And so there's a Jesus take on the story of Abraham. We see the law that's given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the Levitical law. We can see that Jesus references when he comes that he is the fulfillment of that law. That he is the one that comes and if you accept him, he is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets, which is the the entire Old Testament scripture at that point. And so we understand that when we see the law, we see guilt. There's no way that any human being could keep all of the law that existed in the Levitical law. It's overpowering. It's legalistic. It's about performance for acceptance. And Jesus offers us the exact opposite. So when you read any of the law, if you ever have trouble sleeping, just open up Leviticus and start reading. It'll put you right to sleep. But when you read that, right, you read those stories, you read that, you look through the lens of Jesus Christ and you find that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's also the mediator to allow us not to feel the guilt and shame that we feel when we look at the law. You read the story of David, David and Goliath. The David that would eventually become king. And you see that David establishes the throne of David as he becomes the king that follows Saul. And we are told throughout scripture that Jesus would rule and reign on the throne of David. We see the prophets, which makes up a a large part of the kind of the end of the Old Testament. We see the minor prophets and the major prophets. What we see is that God speaks to his people through humanity. And then we look and we see that Jesus was one who spoke on behalf of the Father to humanity. And so it's, 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 it's credible for us to look at any scripture in the Old Testament and see that there's some slant that can incorporate the story, the narrative, the nature of Jesus Christ. But it's a little bit flawed in that because what we have to understand is that not the, the writers of the Old Testament, which were all written prior to Jesus coming, those writers, they didn't have the context of knowing Jesus as you and I read about and know Jesus. 
So they weren't writing about Jesus the way you and I read it about Jesus. So it's unfair to read all of these Old Testament passages and read them in the context that says every passage is about Jesus. Because really it's not about Jesus. But before we get there, I want you to jump with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, you have the Gospels. We've referenced those a lot. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth of the Gospels, which is where we find the stories of Jesus Christ. And John chapter 1 is an incredible passage of Scripture. Again, some of you probably know this. We're going to read the first five verses and then the last, uh, and then 14 through 18. This is what it says in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who's he talking about? Listen. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Run on sentence there. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The message translation says he put on skin and moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God, but we saw the Son. John chapter 1 is really, to me, very similar. It's a parallel passage to some of the other Gospels where you get the genealogy of Christ. If you start with Matthew chapter 1, you read where Jesus came from. This is his family tree. You can kind of track that through Luke when you see the Christmas story. Mark provides us a little different take, but here in John, what you see is that here's the genealogy of Christ. He's God, right? We don't have to track through Joseph. We don't have to track through Mary. Let's go straight to the source. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. And so we understand then reading a little later that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, again, message translation, put on skin and moved into our neighborhood. He came and dwelt among us, lived here on the earth. And so we have seen the glory of the Son, we've seen the glory of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, we see the Father. And so here is what I would say to the Christological interpretation of Scripture. The story is not about Jesus. The story is about the Father. But the greatest storytelling technique that the Father has to show us Himself is to reveal to us the Son. When you read the Scriptures, anywhere that you see Jesus... You're looking at the Father. Everything that we just looked at, creation, making all things new. Jesus was a part of that story, but what was that about? That was showing us that God creates order out of chaos. It's helping us to understand that through the rest of the book, when chaos abounds and sin abounds and literally the whole world is going to hell, that God has the power to restore That we see throughout the rest of the story. And if you go to the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation. Which we're looking maybe to do a a larger series on at some point. Maybe in the spring of next year. You look at this story. You understand that what this helps us to see. Is that the created beings of of Genesis 1. Match up with the idea that God is creating a new earth. 
And so we see God at work there. When we see Noah and we see the deliverance, it's easy to see Jesus there because of what's going on. But who provided the boat? Who provided instructions? Who saved righteousness? God did. Abraham had a covenant. Yes, Jesus is the new covenant. But those covenants are ultimately to and with God the Father. The law obviously brings guilt and overpowering legalism and a performance for acceptance. But ultimately, God, in his provision to us, his love and his mercy for us, provides for us the ultimate sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. We see the the story of the prophets. We see the story of King David. We see this idea that God has a narrative. God has a story. He's establishing a throne. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking through his son, Jesus Christ. But who is the orchestrator of all these things? It is God the Father. And so when we read that no one's ever seen God, but the glory of the Son reveals the Father. The point of every scripture isn't to see Jesus. The point of every scripture is to see the work of God. And ultimately that happens many times through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. If you've been with us very long, you know I do this sometimes. I just want to read some things that I wrote down here so I don't get them wrong, so I don't, I don't miss it. I want, to, I want to say it exactly like I wrote it down. Chaos becomes order through creation. Sin corrupts. Righteousness is retained through Noah. Covenant is created. The law allows for humanity to approach God. The throne is established. God speaks to his people. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The cross, the mission to the ends of the earth, the church as the vehicle for the message, the foreshadowing of the coming rule and reign. The Bible from beginning to end is the story of God. It just so happens that one of the best ways to see God is to look at the Son. The work of Jesus reveals the Father. And so when I read the story of Moses and I see that Moses considered the reproach of Christ... It's not that far-fetched to me. Because Moses didn't know Jesus. But Moses knew God. It's not that far-fetched to me to see that Moses was comfortable in the nature of God and how God worked to understand that there was a part of his nature that allowed for people to suffer rejection. The reproach of Christ is really about the rejection of Christ. It's really about people shunning the work and the words and the message of Jesus Christ. And so Moses himself chose to walk away from the palace and not to be called the the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he chose to align himself with the Hebrew people, those who are connected to him as it relates to the blood covenant God had established with Abraham. There's a part of Moses that knew, even though he didn't know Jesus, that God's a God who delivers on his promises. If you read the story, there's not really anywhere in the early part of the story of Moses where God says to Moses specifically until we get to a really confrontational moment later in the story out in the desert. There's not this moment where we're kind of in line. We we were exposed to the fact that Moses knew what the plan of God was. And yet something in Moses' heart turns towards his brothers. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Rather than choose the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose the reproach of Christ. And later in that verse it says. Because he was pointed towards his reward. He understood that there was something else at play here. Rather than just growing up in the palace. There's something else going on in the story. I don't want to read too much into it. But I wonder if you and I have the ability to view our story in the same way. 
I wonder if you and I have the, the ability to look at our story through the lens of something greater than ourselves. Because I'm assuming that growing up in the palace was pretty cool. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm assuming that was pretty cool. And I'm assuming it takes something really incredible to be going on in your heart for you to walk away from that and to eventually walk out into a desert. Even if it was fear, even if it was mistakes, even if it was a past, even if it was worry, something that we're confronted with in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is telling the story of Moses that his heart was turned towards the plight of his people. There's something about the mistreatment of people that connected him to the restorative work of God. I told you last week, and I promise not to tell cruise stories every week, but I told you last week my wife Corey and I went on a cruise. It was awesome. I wish I could go back. One of the nights we were there, we were on the boat, and there was this place on the boat, it was called like the Serenity Deck, right? We, were, we had gotten away from our kids, and, you know, we, we were just with me and Corey, and our kids were with grandfather. And, and so the Serenity Deck was no kids. You had to be like 21 to go out there, and it was really quiet. We loved it. It was awesome. We spent most of our time there. So one night, we decided, hey, we're going to go out to the Serenity Deck. Well, you know, we, we put on our bathing suits. We we're like, we may get in the hot tub. We may just kind of look out over the ocean as we're just floating along and... So we go out there, and there's nobody out there on the deck except for, like, this one couple kind of over themselves. They're reading and talking and whatever. And so we hopped in the hot tub. We're talking. We hadn't been there about two minutes. And these two women come out, and they stumble into our hot tub. And I say that because they were absolutely smashed. Okay? They, I mean, I'm not kidding when I tell you. They're, they're two of the drunkest people I've ever seen in my whole life. And I've seen some drunk people. They just kind of stumble into the hot tub with us. So, okay, picture it now. Me, my wife, two drunk ladies, okay? We come to find out that one of these ladies is on her divorce cruise. Her friend brought her because she's going through a divorce, and this is the celebration of that divorce. The friend hated the husband, and so she's glad this thing's over. The woman who's going through the divorce, we kind of quickly see, even in this drunken stupor, that she's kind of brokenhearted about the whole thing. But they get in and we're, we're hearing some of their story and then their friend comes and joins them and her boyfriend comes and joins them. So now if you can picture it, it's me and Corey and the two drunk divorce cruise ladies and their friend and her boyfriend. And when I tell you that there's some like terrible language going on, I mean, it's bad. Okay, it's it would make anybody in the room probably blush a little bit. And, and then, as always happens in those moments, I mean, it's without fail, never, ever fails. One of the ladies looks at me and says, so, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a motivational speaker one day a week. What do you say in that moment? I said, I'm a pastor of a church. The air got sucked out of the serenity deck. This lady says, great, that is awesome, great, that is incredible, awesome. I mean, there's no words to say at this moment, right? It's awkward, everybody feels it, except the two drunk ladies who have no clue what we're talking about. I decide, I think I'm going to get out of the hot tub now. I'm just making it awkward for everybody in the hot tub. Corey decides she's going to stay in. So I get out of the hot tub. I go over to one of the, the little lounge chairs there. I brought my iPad. I'm reading a book. 
And I'm just kind of hanging out, looking at the ocean. I, I can't even hear, because of the wind, the way it's blowing, I can't even hear what's going on in the hot tub, really. But there's a bunch of them. And then I look back a couple of times, and, like, the boyfriend left. And then the lady that asked me if I was a pastor left. And some other people had come and gone. And all there is left in the hot tub is Corey and the two divorce cruise women. That's all that's left. And I see that they're having a pretty engaging, serious conversation, which I didn't think was possible when they first showed up. And so after a couple more minutes, I keep reading. After a couple more minutes, I look back again and Corey kind of gets my eye. If you're married in the room, you know what this looks like. She gets my eye and she's kind of giving me one of these. And so I, I get up and I walk back towards the hot tub. And when I do, not the girl that's getting divorced, but her friend that brought her on the cruise says, this is incredible that you're here. I want to walk into a room and always feel that way. But she says, it's incredible that you're here. And she looks at her friend, and they have sobered up really quickly, okay? She looks at her friend, and she says, now's the time. I have no idea what I've walked into at this point. The friend looks at me, and she says, I'm sorry for how you met us. She said, we're, we're good women. I brought my friend here to try to help her just kind of process something really painful in her life. She said, and back home at our church, I've been trying to get her to get baptized. She said, at our church, the way it works is that if a friend wants to baptize you, that's how you do it. You just let that friend baptize you. And the pastors are there and they help, but the friend is the one that baptizes you. She said, I've been asking her on our women's retreats. I've been asking her if we can do this. And she's just always said no. And I think now's the time. Everybody's left. There's nobody here except randomly we ran into a pastor and his wife and we're sitting here in a hot tub and she needs to get baptized. Now, I'm not even sure how baptism in a hot tub would work. I'm thinking it might burn your face. Like, I don't know how hot the water is, but it, I mean, it's bad. So I looked at the lady. I said, do you want to be baptized? She says, I don't think I can. I says, I said, why don't you think you can? Why, why don't you think that you can get, worth, get baptized? She said, I'm unworthy. I said, I think we're all unworthy, aren't we? And I took the next several minutes and I tried to help her walk through the parts of Scripture that I've been preaching for a while here, the last few weeks or months. That God demonstrates His love to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That before we could do anything to earn it, he initiated his love towards us. That God doesn't love you because you earn it. He doesn't love you because you're worthy enough. He doesn't extend grace to you because you've kept the law. He loved you enough that he sent his one and only son. I said, you know, there's something pretty cool about baptism that it talks about in scripture that baptism is about the old man dying away. And the new man coming to life when you come up out of the water. And I said, I think maybe this cruise for you has been intended to do something kind of like that. You've got a life that seems to be ending. And this was a transition cruise, a transition moment towards the next phase, the new part of your life. And how incredible would it be if maybe God was choosing to use this moment to capture your heart and to let you know that your life is not over, but that you have a future. She's crying. I'm crying. I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. 
And when I get done praying, you're going to let your friend baptize you. And I asked her, have you made a public profession relationship with Jesus Christ? She said, yes. I said, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is you going public with a decision that you've already made. So have you done that? She said, yeah. I said, then no, there's no time better than right now. And I prayed. Prayed a simple, short prayer. Can't even tell you what I prayed. And I said, amen. And she had been sitting on the side of that hot tub. And she stepped down into the water. And she got to her friend who baptized her in a hot tub on the serenity deck of a cruise ship. Now, what does that possibly have to do with the story of Moses? I went looking for a hot tub, and I found a baptismal pool. I was expecting conversation with my wife, and I found the story of a broken woman. I was expecting nothing extraordinary to happen. And Jesus showed up. I'm going to ask the band to come. I don't know what's going on in your life. I, I, don't, I don't really have a clue what you came in today with. But when Corey and I went back to our room that night on the boat, we talked about one truth. And it's this truth. God can find you wherever he wants to find you. You think you're walking through a story and it's just you. It's not. You look and you think it's about something else. It's about Jesus. You think it's about brokenness. It's actually about the restoration that's possible in God. You think it's about sickness. It's actually that God can heal. You think it's about no money? It's about the fact that God owns it all. You weren't even looking for him. You thought it was a hot tub. It became a baptism. You just thought it was about a conversation with your spouse and it turns out to be the story of someone that's broken. So here's my question to you. It's kind of two parts. One... Do you need Jesus to show up? Do you just need God to just illuminate his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, in your life? You weren't expecting it. You thought you were coming to church. And yeah, sometimes that happens. But really, you just come to church so that you can kind of feel good. And you just come because your wife or your husband or your kids or somebody wants you to. But man, guess what? You got here today and Jesus is here. And you need him to do something in you. If that's you today, I promise he's here and he can do everything that you need him to do. The second part of this is maybe maybe you don't have some specific need right this moment. You're not really sure that that part of it applies to you. But guess what? I've said this before. You carry Jesus with you. If you're a believer, you are the life of Jesus Christ. You know, we read that He put on skin and moved into the neighborhood. Well, I don't know about you, but the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ doesn't live in my neighborhood. But I do. And I wonder if any of my neighbors that need Jesus, 
know which house I live in. I want to ask our hosts to be prepared to wait on you as we take of communion today. This is our response. This is our moment here where we're going to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take communion. Communion is the act of what Jesus did with his disciples before he went to the cross. If you're not familiar with this, you're going to take two elements, two things, and you're going to take in one little dish there, there's some little wafer cracker elements, and in another there's some cups of juice. We're going to come back together in just a moment, and we're going to take these elements together following the example of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to know when you hold these elements in your hand. When Jesus did this with his disciples, he told them that what they were going to hold was a representation of him. That it was his body. It was his blood. And we get to participate in that today. It's not the same piece of bread he used. It's not the same kind of juice he used. But we hold it in our hands today as representation of the work that he did. The moment he shared. And we're going to share that moment today. And as we do, the band's going to sing. You're going to hold those elements in your hand until we come back together and take them together. But as they sing, I want you to remember this. That whether you have need of Jesus to show up today, or you know somebody in your life who does, it starts now. Whether you're one of those people that's going through a really rough time and you, you're just reading through scripture expecting to see the story of Moses and instead you see Jesus. You were just going to a hot tub and instead you find Jesus. You were just coming to Sequoia High School and here you found Jesus. Jesus is here. And Jesus being here reveals to us the Father and everything that you have need of is found in him. Or today, you know that there are people in your life who need Jesus. It starts today. It starts right now. You're going to take these elements and hold them in your hand. And we're going to participate together in the example of Jesus Christ. And when we leave this place, you're going to carry with you the message, the mission of Jesus. I want to pray. We're going to distribute these elements as the band sings. I'm going to ask you to hold the elements until we come back together. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who shows up in stories we didn't intend to see you in. So God, today I pray for the people in this room who weren't looking for you, but maybe today they found you. I pray for the people who are hurting and broken. Maybe they too are going through a divorce. They feel unworthy. Maybe there's hurt and abuse. Maybe there's mistreatment. Maybe there's uncertainty. Maybe there's fear. Maybe there's doubt. And God, I pray today that they would find you in the midst of that. And I pray for the people who know people in their lives who need you. Help them to resolve again to be Jesus. Help us today to find you. In Jesus' name we pray.